Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 14th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Somebody sent me a, um, a video link earlier this week of a certain um, so-called Christian identity, I, I hate to call him Christian identity, or a pastor, that this Jew from Chicago, this poser on press TV dressed in a suit what, with a backdrop of, of um, skyscrapers, the Chicago skyline or something. How cosmopolitan going on press TV under the um, label of a congregationalist pastor to chastise the Roman Catholic Church for pedophile priests. How stale. Things like that don't advance the, um, they don't advance the gospel of Christ at all. They don't help identity Christians at all. They don't advance our cause of truth and frolicking on the airwaves with sand niggers is not exactly heeding the call to come out from her my people. That's all I'll say about that. It's pretty disgusting. The, um, the mask has been off for a long time. That there are always certain clowns that won't open their eyes and and see the facts in front of their face. Tonight we are going to present our seventh segment of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Marriage and fornication is the subtitle. I know that was much of the topic of the program from last week. Because it is a um, something Paul discusses at length here through chapters 6 and 7 of this epistle. And that is where we will pick up tonight. In our last presentation of this first epistle to the Corinthians, discussing the first half of chapter 6, we elaborated upon the biblical concepts of marriage, adultery, and fornication. We did this so that we could offer a better understanding of the nature of the sins of adultery and fornication, where we get, where we do get quite frequent queries in emails and in the Christogonia forum pertaining to these topics. Denominational sects confound the definitions of these, of these sins. Some of them claim that fornication is merely idolatry. However, here in verse 9, we saw that fornication and idolatry are clearly distinguished. These denominations evidently seek to disguise the fact that among the acts which the Bible calls fornication is the act of miscegenation or race mixing. Other denominations define fornication as being a sexual relationship outside of marriage. And they do that so that they can control the right 
of marriage. Biblical marriage happens in the act of an Adamic man and an Adamic woman joining themselves together and consummating the union in a sexual relationship. That's biblical marriage. If you want to layer on top of that um, societal constructs such as wedding feasts, which we've seen Christ attend, which were also popular amongst the pagan Greeks or, or, or um, public exchanges of vows and all those things are fine. There's nothing wrong with all of those things but they are not the marriage. The marriage, well, Isaac took Rebecca to the tent and she became his wife. Three Old Testament witnesses, Rebecca, Leah, and Bathsheba, all attest to that. But there are others as well. That will also become apparent as we proceed to chapter 7 of this epistle. In truth, there is no such thing, and this is the important point of my harping on this, in truth, there is no such thing as a sexual union between a man and a woman outside of marriage. There's no such thing. These fools have 50, 60, 100 sexual partners and then they get married? They've already been married a hundred times. It's incredible. Our society and, and, and these corruptions of, of the idea of marriage have, have basically given people license not to do this. They don't have license to sin, but they have license to assuage their consciences and justify themselves by doing it. And it's wrong. There is, in reality, no such thing as a sexual union outside of marriage. Because if a man is having a sexual relationship with a woman, unless the woman is being raped, then they're either getting married upon committing the act, or they are committing adultery when the act is performed. There is no other biblical choice. After fornication, there is adultery. We often hear in Christian identity circles that adultery is race mixing. And that is true. But from a biblical perspective, it is not true for the reasons that most identity Christians may presume. The English word adulterate does bear the meaning of mingling something with a foreign substance. But there is no indication in Scripture that the original Hebrew word had that same meaning. We do see in Scripture, as we cited several witnesses, that a man can commit adultery with the wife of a man of his own tribe. So adultery is not only race-mixing, and the common use of the term is correct in the basic sense in which it is generally used. Having a sexual relationship with someone other than your husband is adultery. With somebody else's wife is adultery. 
The Greek term, moikia. Strong's number 3430. Properly, I believe it should be pronounced moikia. Is related to a verb which means to mix. Mignumi. The Greeks used that verb, which means to mix, mignumi, to describe men of mixed race, or mongrels. However, the Greeks used moikaya even of an illicit relationship between a man and his brother's wife, for instance, or a man and his neighbor's wife, where it becomes evident that to the Greeks such mixing signified not necessarily only race mixing, which the Greeks considered to be a form of fornication, but a confusion of family lines within a race. And that's the result of moikaya, or adultery. Fornication is race mixing, defined as the pursuit of strange flesh, according to the Apostle Jude. Paul agrees with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But fornication also describes other illicit sexual acts, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that Paul used it to describe the man who bedded his father's wife. Of course, fornication is also whoredom, and the words from which the term is translated literally refer to prostitution, Although, as we saw at length last week, they were not always used in that manner by the Greeks. Adultery is an illicit sexual union with the wife of another. But, in the New Testament, when the children of Israel joined themselves to anyone outside of the bounds of their covenant relationship with Yahweh, they were committing adultery against him because he commanded that they remain separate with narrow and specific instructions as to when or whether those of other nations may join to them. Because they were also either literally or metaphorically selling themselves to the other nations and races outside of, by going outside of his covenant, they were also committing fornication. There was a podcast at Christogenia which explained all this at length, entitled Adultery and Fornication, which was um, broadcast on July, in July, of 2010. Neither of these terms, adultery nor fornication, are by themselves technical terms explicitly describing the act of sex between people of different races. However, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, applied these terms in that manner. Although in English the word adultery certainly fits that description, the, and biblically the English word adultery is appropriate, there are other biblical laws which do preclude such race mixing. However, the biblical application of these terms to the act of race mixing is only properly understood once it is realized that race mixing is forbidden, predicated upon the relationship of the children of Israel with Yahweh their God. 
Race mixing is adultery because by race mixing, the Israelite is violating the terms of the covenant. Race mixing is fornication because by doing so, the Israelite is playing the harlot and violating the terms of the covenant. The laws preclude race mixing in many ways. And when the Israelite forsakes Yahweh's law for the comfort or or friendship of the non-Israelite races or the non-Adamic races, he becomes a whore. In the New Testament, the use of these terms with such a meaning, oh, that reminds me of um, of, of that guy I talked about on Press TV. In the New Testament, the use of these terms with such a meaning has not changed. And the sins that these terms describe are valid in the same manner. Which is evident in both 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which we will, Yahweh willing, we will discuss in the weeks to come, and Revelation chapter 2, as well as places such as Jude. When Christians race mix or pursue strange flesh, they are committing adultery and fornication. But the denominational sects deny the exclusivity of the covenant with Israel, and therefore they are forced to pervert the definitions of these words, the biblical usage of these words. Upon doing so, they sometimes also redefine these words in a way that fits their own agenda, as in the case of the word fornication. With this, we will repeat verses 9 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and discuss another aspect of Paul's statements there. Or do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of Yahweh? Do not be led astray, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor rapacious shall inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. And these things some of you may have been, but you have cleansed yourselves. Moreover, you have been sanctified. Moreover, you have been deemed fit in the name of Prince Yahshua Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul lists these sins not as a complete catalog, but rather as examples of sinful behavior. For some very sinful acts were not included in this short list, such as murder. People doing these things shall be excluded from the kingdom of God. There is a very similar statement in reference to the city of God in Revelation chapter 22. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without, meaning for outside, are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whoever, whosoever loves and makes a lie. 
But that does not necessarily mean that men who have done these things are excluded from the kingdom of God. Men do not attain the kingdom of God on their own accord. Rather, it is an inheritance which has been left for certain men exclusively. The idea of inheriting the kingdom of God is expressed in the gospel at Matthew chapter 25. In the parable of the sheep and the goats. In that parable, the Son of Man, which is Christ himself, is depicted with his messengers as separating the people of all nations, who are depicted as sheep and as goats. All of the sheep are set on the right hand, and all of the goats on the left, and they are separated on sight as a shepherd does in the field. A close examination of the parable reveals that the sheep are judged according to how they have treated the sheep, and the goats are judged according to how they have treated the sheep. From there to all of the sheep, it is said, Come, ye blessed of my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And all of the goats go into the lake of fire. Ostensibly, the goats do not matter in the result of Yahweh's plan for the sheep. If the goats did matter, then perhaps they should have been judged on how they treated the goats, since naturally each kind cares for its own. The goats are judged on how they treated the sheep. In Isaiah chapter 60, which is a prophecy of the restoration of Israel, there is a portion which is also similar to the depiction of the city of God in the Revelation. And it says from verse 19, The sun shall no more, shall be no more thy light by day, Neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but Yahweh shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself, for Yahweh shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy morning shall be ended. Thy people also shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, Yahweh, will hasten it in its time. In Revelation chapter 22 we read, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, in the city of God. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For Yahweh God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And uh, 
Yahweh, the God of the holy prophets, sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. As Paul said in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Yahshua. Where the revelation in that same place says that God is of the holy prophets, the reference must be to the Old Testament prophets. And these things must therefore be fulfilled in accordance with those prophets. The prophets in a revelation each contain the words of the same God revealed to man in different ways at different times. Where Isaiah said, Thy people also shall be all righteous. It can only be because, as the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah chapter 45, I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In Yahweh have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come. And all that are incensed against him, all the goats, shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. The same scripture which states explicitly that all Israel shall be justified and that all Israel shall be saved, that all the sins of Israel shall be forgiven, also states that unto God every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Since, as we had seen here, discussing 1 Corinthians chapter 5, sinners may be surrendered to Satan for destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may live in the day of Christ, then we can only safely conclude that those sinners are justified and turn to obedience when they face Christ in the judgment. Otherwise... The word of God fails, and every knee does not bow, and every tongue does not confess. The kingdom of God is the inheritance of all of Israel, because that was among the promises made unto the fathers. Paul said in his first epistle to Timothy that some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. But some men, they follow after. Therefore, it is evident that those of Israel who do not bow the knee and confess to God in this life certainly shall in the hereafter. However, those of Israel who hear the gospel and have received the call to repentance and to conform themselves to Christ 
in this life. That is the purpose of the gospel of Christ. For Israel, here on earth, to return to obedience in Yahweh. Once the children of Israel realize that they have redemption and an eternal life in Christ that will be free of the sins of this world, they should want to cease from those sins upon hearing the gospel, which is the call to obedience which Paul had spoken of in Romans chapter 15, where he said from verse 18, Indeed, I will not venture to speak anything of which Christ is not fashioned through me regarding the compliance of the nations in word and deed. Likewise, the Apostle John said in his first epistle that my children, I write these things to you in order that you do not sin. And if one should sin, we meaning the children of Israel. We have an advocate with the Father, Yahshua Christ the righteous, and he is a propitiation on behalf of our sin, yet not for ours only, but for the whole society, for the entire Adamic society. And by this we may know that we know him, if we would keep his commandments. He's saying that he knows him and not keeping his commandments. He is a liar and the truth is not in him. But he whom would keep his word. Truly the love of Yahweh is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Peter also in his first epistle spoke of the same thing where he said in 1 Peter chapter 1, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yahshua Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, so you... Be holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Paul is not condemning men who had committed fornication, or who were adulterers, or even those, as disgusting as it may seem, who were homosexuals. Rather, Paul is informing us that the kingdom of God will not have any of these things, while also informing the Corinthians that even if they had done any of these things, they have departed from them. They have cleansed themselves, ostensibly in the blood of the Lamb. Doing this... Christians demonstrate their willingness for repentance and prepare themselves for the kingdom of God, while also in their actions agreeing that the things which they have repented from are evil. Therefore, John said, and by this we may know him, if we would keep, I'm sorry, and by this we may know that we know him, 
if we would keep his commandments. While all Israel is saved, Christians, meaning Israelites who hear the gospel of Christ, should strive for that treasure in heaven of which Christ had spoken. Paul depicts this as running a race. He said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, So therefore, we also, having so great a cloud of witnesses lying around us, laying aside every pretension and easily attention-getting error or sin, with endurance should run the race lying before us, looking to Yahshua, the founder and completer of the faith, who for the sake of joy, lying before him, endured the cross, having despised shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of Yahweh. Similarly, he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Moreover, I do all these things on account of the good message, in order that I shall come to have a share of it. Do you not know that with those running in a race, while all run, but one takes the prize? In that manner you run in order that you shall obtain. But all who are contending in all things have self-control. So then those people, meaning those who run literal races, in order that they would receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Accordingly, in that manner, I run not as if secretly. In that manner, I spar not as if thrashing air. Rather, I beat my body and bring it into subjection. Lest perhaps I, having proclaimed to others, myself should be found not standing the test. Paul's talking not about eternal life, but about that reward promised by Christ to those who do better. That treasure stored up in heaven that's evidently granted through the good works that we do in this life and how we love our God and demonstrate that by seeking his kingdom. However, knowing that all Israel shall be saved, Paul goes on to explain in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, which we stopped short of in our previous presentation, to me, all is possible, but all does not profit. To me, all is possible, but I will not yield authority to be brought under any. And Paul demonstrated in that previous quote I had given in one from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, as well as from this statement here, that those who preach the gospel should practice it. The Greek word, existin, it's probably the word that we get exist from. Existin is possible here. It means, according to Liddell and Scott, it is allowed. It is in one's 
power or it is lawful. I did not translate it as lawful here as other translations do because it should not be confused with lawful as in the sense of it being within the laws of God or the Old Testament law. Other Greek words describe that type of lawful, such as nomimos or enomos. Paul is stating that all is possible for him because with the grace of God, all Israel is cleansed of all their sins. If you seek that prize Paul was talking about, you don't sin, you desist from the sins of the world. You follow his commandments, showing that you love him. We have already cited the first epistle of John, where he, where he said that you sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Yahshua Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Therefore, if an Israelite commits sin, he has propitiation in Christ. Paul here is teaching the same thing that John taught from a different perspective. He's saying all is possible, but all does not profit. All is possible, but I will not yield authority to be brought under any. Sin is not profitable because it diminishes our relationship with God, as Christ explains in one in, I'm sorry, in the Gospel of John in chapter fourteen. If a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. If we love our God, we demonstrate our love by keeping his word. And he shall be with us. Paul continues by explaining several aspects of that same thing. And he says, foods are for the belly, 1 Corinthians 6.13, and a belly for food. But Yahweh will do away with both this and these. Now the body is not in fornication, but in the prince. And the prince in the body. The prince or the Lord. The things of this life are temporary. And therefore Adamic men being eternal should not be consumed by them. From Job chapter 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand in the later day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, Yahweh will do away with both this and these, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Verse 14. And Yahweh is both raised the prince and will raise us. 
through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And Paul will get into um, the details of resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from his perspective. We should note something about Paul's Greek here. I'm often criticized for the matter that I'm about to address those people with um, pasta for last names that love to criticize my Greek. And, and, And they really... That they're just looking for things to criticize for the sake of the criticism. The Greek verb, I me, I me, I me. That's that's the way to pronounce it. Strong's number fifteen ten means to be. The present active second person singular form of that verb is estin, which appears here. In verse 15, in all of the Greek manuscripts of this epistle, I'm sorry, it's the present active third person singular. Typically, the third person singular form, estin, would be translated into English as is, as in he or she or it is. The third person form, Isen, third person plural form, Isen, is generally are, as in they are. In certain places of contention in scripture, and, and this seems trite, but it's certainly, um, certainly important, In places of contention in scripture, such as at Galatians 3.16, we have been criticized for our assertion that the verb estin should be translated as are rather than is when it refers to a collective noun or a collection of objects or in similar other circumstances. There are those who insist that our Galatians 3.16 translation is wrong, where it says, which are anointed, talking about a plurality of seed, simply because the word estin must be is and cannot be are. Yet here in verse 15, which we have just read, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Here in verse 15 of this chapter, Estin is are. A-R-E. Even though it's the singular form of the verb, it's are. In every Bible translation we have checked, including the King James Version. Even while the Greek words here for bodies and members are both plural. We have a singular verb, estin. And by this, we are wholly vindicated of our 
treatment of this verb in Galatians 3.16. Just a note that I felt that I should make to address some of those critics. We may have rendered the Greek phrase, Mele Christu Estin, as our anointed members. Do you not know that your bodies are anointed members? It would not have been incorrect. Doing so, we may have then rendered the phrase which follows, which we see in the next verse, then having raised the members of the anointed. Understanding that the anointed one is Yahshua Christ, and that his anointed people are the children of Israel, and that they collectively are the anointed. We may read both ideas in the text without removing Christ from it. Paul continues by saying, Then having raised the members of the Christ, shall I make members of the harlot? Certainly not. If Christians are a body, if the assembly is a body of anointed people with Yahshua Christ at the head, then allowing one fornicator into the assembly of Christ makes harlots of the entire body. Therefore, it is necessary for Christians to repent of their sins and cleanse themselves with the word of God before joining and being admitted into the ecclesia. You don't turn to Christ and repent. You repent because you seek to turn to Christ. You seek that communion with your God. Or do you not know that he joining himself to the harlot is one body? They shall be, he declares, two into one flesh. So if you allow the fornicator to remain in your assembly, you turn the whole assembly into a church of whores. Paul quotes from Genesis 2.24, which Christ himself cited, although in a different context, as it is recorded in Matthew 19, verse 5, and Mark 10, verse 8. From Genesis, from 2.23, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh and they were both naked the man and his wife and they were not ashamed this passage from Genesis tells us not only that a man should become one with his wife it also prescribes prescribes what a wife should properly be flesh of his flesh and bones of his bones. Those things are therefore prerequisites for a proper marriage. Therefore a man with something other than that for a wife is not married. Instead, 
He is committing fornication, the pursuit of strange flesh, and he cannot be admitted into the assembly of Christ. Verse 17. But he, joining himself to the prince, is one spirit. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, from verse 5, Indeed, when we were in the flesh, the occurrences of sin, which were through the law, operated in our members for the bearing of fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, being put to death in that which we were held, so that we are bound in newness of spirit and not oldness of letter. While Israel is released from the judgment of the law, one coming to Christ must nevertheless conform himself to Christ. He joining himself to the prince is one spirit. Therefore Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, speaking of the children of Israel, because those whom he has known beforehand, he is also appointed beforehand, Conform to the image of his son, for him to be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those whom he is appointed beforehand, these he also calls, and those whom he calls, these he also deems worthy, while those whom he deems worthy, these he also honors. It is those who also inherit the kingdom of heaven. The Adamic man has two natures, the spiritual and the fleshly. As we explained at length, presenting Romans chapter 7 here some months ago. Therefore, having that spirit which Yahweh imparted to the Adamic race, we may overcome the things of the flesh and be joined in one spirit to our God and Creator. 1 John 4.13 Hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Verse 18 1 Corinthians 6 Flee fornication. Every error which perhaps a man may make is outside of the body, but he committing fornication for his own body he fails. Here Paul is not referring to the body of Christ, where all the sins of men have an adverse effect, but to the body of the individual. Aside from the consumption and lust which fornication leads to, there were also venereal diseases and other hazards at that time, which the physicians of the time were not able to cure. While many of the extant venereal diseases are relatively new to Europeans, brought from the non-white races, such as syphilis, others have been among us for thousands of years. Herpes. Herpes was described by Hippocrates in the 5th century B.C. There are surviving records of gonorrhea among the Greeks, from at least as early as the 2nd century A.D. These diseases destroyed the body from the inside and they were the result of fornication. Venereal disease was known about in Paul's time 
and there was no coming back from it. There was no penicillin. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in you, which you have from Yahweh, and you are not your own? This is the second time Paul made this this allegory in this epistle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, Do you not know that you are a temple of Yahweh, and that the Spirit of Yahweh dwells in you? If anyone should spoil the temple of Yahweh, Yahweh will spoil the same. Indeed, the temple of Yahweh is holy, such as which you are. As Paul had explained in chapter 5 of this epistle, sinners should be put out of the assembly of of Christ, so that God should judge them. Being put out of the body of Christ, they are delivered to the adversary for destruction of the flesh. From the wisdom of Sirach, from chapter 39, there be spirits that are created for vengeance, which in their fury lay on sore strokes, In the time of destruction they pour out their force and appease the wrath of him that made them. Venereal diseases have always been with us. Verse 20 Indeed, you have been purchased for a price, so then you honor Yahweh in your body. The majority text in some later manuscripts append to the end of this verse the words, and in your spirit, which is of God, which explains the additional words as they appear in the King James Version. It is folly for a man to think that he could belong to himself alone, as if his own purpose had given him life. We read in Jeremiah chapter 18, Then a word of Yahweh came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith Yahweh. Behold, the clay is in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. At what instant shall I speak concerning a nation, and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turns from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant shall I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant? If it does evil in my sight, that it obeys not my voice, then I will repent of the good, wherewith I said I would benefit them. Nevertheless, Yahweh God gave man the liberty to go his own way, as Paul explained in Acts chapter 14, where he described the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Humanism. However, from there, Yahweh took Isaac to himself and redeemed or purchased the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt, 
which is mentioned several times in Deuteronomy, in 1 Chronicles, and also in a prophet, the words of the prophet Micah, where Yahweh says, For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent thee before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Later the children of Israel had sold themselves into sin by their disobedience to their God, for which they were put off from the sight of Yahweh and sent back into captivity. From that there was another promise of redemption, as it says in Isaiah chapter 52, For thus saith Yahweh, You have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. The lesson in this is that no matter what man thinks that he may do, he shall be punished and forgiven and punished again until he decides to conform himself to Christ, agreeing with his God that his law is good and remaining in obedience to that law. The children of Israel are not their own, but now have been redeemed by Christ. If you're ignorant of your, the history of your race, that doesn't give you an excuse to come out from under bondage, to come out from under the fact that you are only a possession. You did not create yourself. From Isaiah chapter 43. But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he formed he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. And the key words here, thou art mine. And in verse 5, fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. Paul was teaching the fulfillment of that redemption of Israel prophecy in Isaiah. If you are an Israelite, you have no choice in the matter. You are not your own. You cannot save yourself, and you cannot unsave yourself. You'd better just conform to Christ. With this, we shall proceed with 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where we see that while Paul turns to address issues about which the Corinthians had written to him the predominant topics are still marriage and fornication now concerning those things you have written it is admirable for a man not to join to a woman and some manuscripts add the words to me after written. The Greek word, hapto, hapto was a verb, Strong's numbers 680 and 681. For some reason, when Strong made his lexicon, he divided hapto in two between the active voice and the medium voice, haptomahi, 
they're basically the same word. The Greek word hapto is to join to here. But in the King James Version, it is to touch. Liddell and Scott define the word in part as to fasten, to bind fast, to join, hold of, grasp, or touch, and even metaphorically to engage in or take part in, among other things. While touch is certainly among the definitions, in our modern idiom, it seems to be an understatement concerning the context here, where Paul clearly is using the word as a mild euphemism. Verse 2 fully ascertains the sexual reference Paul is making with this use of the term hapto, since it is expressed in conjunction with a reference to fornication and marriage as a precaution against fornication. With this, it is evident that the sexual inference of the word touch was clearer in the 16th century English of the King James translators, because they have touch here. We see the same idiom expressed in Hebrew language, the word maga, Genesis 3.3, Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, Ruth chapter 2, verse 9, Proverbs 6.29, as well as elsewhere. In all of those places, in the Septuagint, we see this same Greek word, hapto, which better than touch means to join to, because it's a the Greeks had other words for touch. Hapto has a much stronger connotation. Paul is not, however, where he says it is admirable for a man not to join to a woman. Paul is not discrediting marriage. We do not have a full understanding of the things which the Corinthians had wrote to him from only the first sentence of his answer, we won't have a full understanding until we get to the end of chapter 7. In his epistle to the Hebrews, Paul said, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. It is admirable for a man not to join to a woman concerning the things the Corinthians had written. Those things will be revealed at the end of this chapter, towards the end of this chapter. But because of fornication, each man must have his own wife and each woman must have her own husband. So we see that a proper marriage relationship is not fornication, but rather it is a remedy to the passions of desire that can possibly lead one to fornication. Marriage is the remedy to fornication. It is admirable for a man to remain alone, but if the man cannot quench his desires, it is better 
that he be married. The husband must render the obligation due to the wife, and in like manner, the wife also to the husband. Married men and women have a sexual obligation to one another which is reflected in the law of God. For instance, in Exodus chapter 21, it says of a man who desires a second wife, that if he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage, he shall not diminish her duty of marriage. He shall not diminish. The sexual obligation is the duty of marriage, which is also evident in Deuteronomy chapter 25, where it says, If brethren dwell together, and one of them dies, and has no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without or outside unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. That's the duty of marriage. That the Old Testament law allowed polygamy on the part of men but not of women is a topic for another occasion. However, the godly model is monogamy on the part of both man and woman, as we see Christ himself espouse in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. Verse 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband, and in like manner also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife. What Paul says here is the common sense conclusion from reading the law of God. From Genesis chapter 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The man has surrendered himself to his wife. And then from Genesis chapter 3, unto the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. The man cleaving to his wife is accountable to his wife, and the man ruling over his wife, his wife is accountable to him. Therefore, the family unit should function in harmony, being accountable to one another towards building the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5. Do not withdraw from another, from, I'm sorry, from one another. Unless in agreement for a time, in order that you devote time to prayer, the Masoretic, I'm sorry, the majority text has to prayer and fasting, and come together into one place again, that the adversary would not tempt you due to your incontinence, that the adversary, or Satan, is a tempter of men, 
is evident in the Gospel, in Matthew chapter 4, in Luke chapter 4, and elsewhere. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul wrote, For this reason, even I, no longer being contained, is sent for which to know of your faith, whether the tempter has tempted you, and our labor should come to no purpose. As the Apostle John asserted, we know that we are from of Yahweh, and the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. Those outside of the body of Christ persistently tempt Christians with their own evil deeds. The Apostle Peter spoke of Lot, who lived in Sodom up until the time of its destruction, from the same perspective where he said in 2 Peter chapter 2 that Yahweh delivered the righteous Lot who had been oppressed by the licentious conduct of the lawless for with sights and reports the righteous one, meaning Lot, dwelling among them, meaning among the sodomites, tormented a righteous soul with their lawless deeds. In other words, Lot, dwelling in Sodom, was tormenting his own soul by having to observe the lawless deeds of the sodomites. Peter spoke of the ungodly again in that same chapter where he said in verse 14 having eyes full of adultery and unable to cease from wrongdoing enticing unstable souls having hearts exercised for greediness he then called them cursed children Peter goes on to say in chapter 4 of that epistle while they are astonished they blaspheme it. You're not running together in the same excess profligacy. So it is not, it is not some spiritual demon named Satan that tempts men. But godless people in general who are collectively Satan, the adversary, who would lead the children of Yahweh astray. Being separated from one's wife, one may be tempted into fornication by some whore, or a woman without her husband by some unseemly cretin, some yard ape walking down the street. All men think they can withstand that, but if one spouse is nearby, if you are with your wife, as Paul says, not to be separated, then there is no reason to undergo the trial. There's no reason to be tempted. As Paul insists here, men and women should be with their wives or husbands as much as possible. They shouldn't be separated. It's not natural. Verse 6. Now I say this in a way of a consent, not in the way of a command. And he's referring to what he is about to say. Here in several times in this epistle, we shall see that Paul advised the assembly from his own opinions where he must have been presented with questions that could not be answered explicitly with scripture. 
In verse 10 of this chapter, Paul relates the will of Christ that men and women are not divorced and says that it is a command from Christ. We're not up to that verse yet. In verse 25, and again in verse 40, Paul addresses things which are not explicitly treated by Scripture, and therefore he admits that he is only giving an opinion. And that's what he's doing here in different language. He says in verse 25, A commandment of the prince I do not have, but I give an opinion. Meaning that he can't find a law or something in the gospel which supports his opinion explicitly. So he's telling the congregation that it's only his opinion. It does not have the force of law. This demonstrates not only Paul's humility, but also his unwillingness to rule over the faith of the assembly, which he also professed in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, not because we lord over your faith. Paul refused to rule over the assemblies. Contrary to the false claims of the modern Romish Catholics, Paul was not their first pope. Not at all. Verse 7. Now I say this, I'll reread verse 6 in conjunction with it because they're related. Now I say this in the way of a consent, not in the way of a command, that I wish all men to be even as myself, but each has his own gift from Yahweh, in this manner one, and in that manner another. Paul is not necessarily implying that he wishes that all men remain unmarried. He was unmarried, but that's not necessarily what he's saying here. Rather, he wishes that all men were chaste and had control over their desires, as he professes to have control over his own. But I say to those unmarried and to those widowed, well for them it is, if perhaps they should remain even as I being unmarried. But if they have no self-control, Paul had that control, so he wished that all men would have that control. But if they have no self-control, they must marry, for it is better to be married than to be inflamed. The Greek verb Puro is literally, it's Strong's number 4448, is literally to burn with fire or to burn up. But it was also used metaphorically to be inflamed or to be excited, according to Liddell and Scott and other sources in this instance. Paul is describing what we may call a burning passion caused by a natural sexual desire 
Therefore, Paul believed that marriage was the way to clench that sexual desire in a lawful manner. So we see that marriage being the solution for a burning sexual desire. To Paul, the definition of marriage must be the lawful sexual union of a man and a woman. This is further substantiated later in this chapter in verse 36, where it is clear that a man may possess a maiden, a virgin, but not yet be married to her. And the marriage occurs when the sexual desire is satisfied. Or, as Paul describes it in that verse, if one does consider to be unseemly towards his virgin. And Paul is using euphemisms to describe the sexual act. Verse 10. Now today who are married, I give order, not I, but the prince. So Paul is explicitly saying that this is a commandment of scripture. For a wife not to be separated from a husband. But if perhaps then she does separate, she must remain unmarried. Or to the husband be reconciled. There's a lot to be told in that verse. And the husband not to put away a wife. Here Paul considers separation from a husband a state of being unmarried. Today we have rituals and we have certificates. Whether those rituals are conducted at an altar or in a courtroom is immaterial. We have these rituals and certificates which have been layered atop the factual realities of life. The Bible isn't talking about rituals and certificates. It's talking about factual realities. Today, because we have these rituals and certificates that the government has imposed on us, that our churches had imposed on us, in recent history, within the last 300 years, and not before that, the Church of England didn't even record marriages until the 16th century. Today, because we have these rituals and certificates, we are confusing them for the facts of life. In that manner, the government or the church can run the lives of men because we've ceded our God-given ability to determine when we are married and when we are divorced. We've ceded that to the government and the churches, so now the government runs our lives in many other aspects as well. In Paul's worldview, it was the factual realities which mattered. And the state of separation, as we see here in verse 10 and 11, the state of separation was the state of unmarriage. While the state of sexual union and the accompaniment of a husband by a woman, that was marriage. The factual reality matters. The, 
this, the, the ceremonies are nice and the certificates only eventually may make you end up paying some Jew lawyer. The ceremonies are nice, but they are not the marriage. The factual reality is the marriage. The factual reality is the divorce. While the law of Moses allowed for divorce for reasons other than fornication, according to Christ, the only valid reason for, for divorce is fornication, where he says in Matthew chapter 5, But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving or accept for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. The advice Paul offers which follows are therefore in accord with the words of Christ. And before we move on to that advice, starting in verse 12, we have to consider that divorce was much more difficult for women in the ancient world than it was for men. Because women had no property rights. And there were no divorce settlements as we know them today. In the ancient world, the woman was not going to get happier house. She was not going to have her choice of car. She was not going to get half of the bank, bank book. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying it's right that the woman gets nothing. It's the factual reality. In the ancient world, when a man divorced his wife... She got nothing unless she held property of her own separately, which in Rome she could do. Among the Greeks, she could only do that if she inherited that property in certain conditions. Otherwise, women didn't own property. So in the ancient world, regardless of who separated from whom, it is very likely that a woman would have absolutely nothing upon divorcing a husband or being divorced. Therefore, a woman divorced would be forced to find another man who would take her in. She wouldn't have a choice. Which is why Christ said that a man divorcing a wife for no good reason causes her to commit adultery. Because the woman, having no property, has to go find another man who would take her in. She'll starve to death in the streets. She'll have to work as a whore or, or in some other menial position if she's lucky to find one to earn her daily bread. Of course, if the woman was put away for cause of fornication, then adultery on top of that surely wouldn't matter. However, a woman who left her husband for reason of his fornication that's another matter. That's just as legitimate as a man putting a wife away for reason of fornication. Without a doubt, all throughout the law of God, what's good for the male is good for the female. Verse 12. Now furthermore, I, not the prince... Here Paul is giving advice. He's saying it's from him. It's not from Christ. He's giving his advice because here is a situation which is not covered explicitly by the law of God. 
Now furthermore, I, not the prince, say, if any brother has an unbelieving wife, and she consents to dwell with him, he must not put her away. And any woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to dwell with her, she must not divorce that husband. Paul's advice, even though he says it's his advice, is evidently based on the words of Christ concerning divorce, where he said in the Gospel that fornication was a legitimate cause for divorce and that any other reason leads to adultery. The unbelieving husband has been sanctified in the wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified in the brother. And the, ma the majority text and some later manuscripts have husband there rather than brother. All of the older manuscripts have brother. Otherwise, then your children are unclean while now they are holy. Among the ancient Greeks, it was customary, and it was even expected, for one to marry from one's own tribe. The Romans even had laws governing the rights of intermarriage between people of various nations, even when those nations were already related. As we have demonstrated, the Corinthians were Dorian Greeks, and they were one of the tribes of the dispersions of Israel. It cannot be imagined that the unbelievers Paul refers to here are not Dorian Greeks, or that they are not of the dispersions of Israel. Fornication is valid grounds for divorce. In the law, a man whose wife committed fornication or adultery cannot have her back because the penalty for such things is death. And a man who divorces his wife cannot have her back after she has been with another man. From Deuteronomy chapter 24, when a man has taken a wife and married her, and it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And because she has the bill of divorce from the husband, that's how she could be another man's wife, because she and her new husband cannot suffer penalty for adultery. That's why the bill of divorce was commanded to be issued. Otherwise, the, the, the first husband could say, Hey, my wife's sleeping with this other guy. And they would both be stoned to death. And if the later husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and give it into her hand and sends her out of his house, 
or if the later husband dies, which took her to be his wife. Her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which Yahweh thy God gives thee for an inheritance. Christians should follow these laws. A Christian man or woman, being married to an unbeliever, should nevertheless hold the unbeliever to the law concerning fornication and adultery. The unbeliever would have to abstain from such things in order to remain married to the Christian. Otherwise, there can be no consent to remain together. Therefore, the unbeliever remaining would be separated from the adultery and fornication for which the children of Israel were punished by Yahweh God in the first place. That is the sanctification of which Paul speaks here. It's not sanctification from God. It's sanctification of themselves because they would cleanse themselves of those sins even if they did not believe the gospel. They would cease and desist from those sins agreeing to have a Christian spouse. Therefore, in that manner of the children and the, the, the unbelieving spouse sanctified. While Yahweh has promised to sanctify Israel, the children of Israel were often exhorted to sanctify themselves in preparation for their God. We see that here in this chapter, in verses 9, 10, and 11, where Paul talks about these sinners and their repentance and describes that in these same terms, that they sanctified themselves. We read in Joshua chapter 3, And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow Yahweh will do wonders among you. Likewise, in Joshua chapter 7, Up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, for thus saith Yahweh God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel, thou cannot stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. True sanctification is not found in any ritual or even in any profession of faith. Rather, sanctification comes when one separates himself from things which are accursed, from things which are profane, separating oneself from adulterers and fornicators and the other sins of the world, one may become sanctified. Which is how Paul says that the wife and children are sanctified in a Christian husband, or that a husband is sanctified in a Christian wife.
However, the Christian, to be a Christian, must actually put his or her profession to practice and keep the laws of Yahweh God in his or her household. Acting like a Christian should acting like a Christian should and one's profession is secondary acting like a Christian sanctifies us our profession what we say with our lips these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me because they had the profession but they didn't act like Christians yes they were Christians in the Old Testament also acting like a Christian sanctifies a Christian one's profession is secondary like the true states the factual realities of marriage and divorce it's the factual realities of the walk in the faith which matter not the ceremonies, the certificates, or what you say out of your mouth. You'll change your mind tomorrow. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving separates himself, let him separate himself. The brother or the sister is not reduced to bondage in these instances, but in peace Yahweh has called us, ostensibly being not reduced to bondage means being free to move on apart from the unbeliever who cannot live with a Christian spouse. And being free to move on, one is free to find another wife or husband. Yahweh willing, we will continue with our presentation of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and our discussion of these topics here next week. Sunday, this Sunday at 2 p.m., Christogenia Europe and Sven Longshanks. We will be talking about Jewish ritual murder. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther. Praise Yahweh. And good night. <laughs>